In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity. And welcome back to another week on the Catholic Toolbox, the art of practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh, here as we equip you with practical tools to live your faith in our modern world of today. And very importantly, this week, we're discussing the topic of the magisterium. For those who haven't heard what the magisterium is, it's the teaching authority of the church. But I'm glad to welcome Father Matthew Dimian aboard to the Catholic Toolbox. Welcome aboard, Father. Thanks for having me, George. It's uh, it's great to have you here for the first time here on the Catholic Toolbox. Yes, you've been asking me for a few years, but now that I'm uh, ordained, I feel like I can, um, yeah, I, I can speak uh, uh, with with a bit more uh, authority. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's excellent. I remember a few years ago, um, actually it was a year ago or two, I think a year ago, uh, asking you to come on, but then it's sort of as if you're waiting for your ordination and uh, to have that great uh, maybe perhaps greater grace <laughs> to speak on the yeah on the show um maybe it's just i wasn't sure as a seminarian if i had much to contribute but maybe that i've thought through things a little bit and i can rely on the grace of ordination sure i thought i'd give it a go yeah you've received enough grace uh, in your vocation <laughs> i'm sure to speak about the well, the magisterium oh i I need some grace, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's excellent. It's great to have you. I, I, I just had a. It was just tremendous. Um, you, the day of your ordination, um, he coincided with the funeral of His Eminence Cardinal George Pell. I mean, it was just mm. a, a day full of grace. You saw, you know, a great shepherd of the church leave, and then, and then he left a legacy of the, the ordination just in that same evening. You know. <laughs> It's a new springtime in the church, and um, uh, I, I'm praying for you constantly in your vocation. And uh, for those who don't know who you are, why don't you start off by introducing yourself um, to our listeners? Oh, thanks, brother. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm Father Matthew Dimian. So I've, I've just been ordained four months ago, so it's still really fresh. Um, you can nearly smell the chrism still wet on my hands. Um but I, I've been appointed as an assistant priest at um, St. Bernadette's Church in Castle Hill. Um, so I, I belong to the Parramatta Diocese. And actually, I, I grew up near here. So it's pretty cool being appointed an assistant priest um, close to where, to where you grew up. And I, now uh, I have people as my parishioners who are like the parents of my mates from school <laughs> and um, people that I've known for ages. Uh, my, my parents are... 
and my only sibling, they're all pharmacists and they, they own um, a local pharmacy here. And so there are people who are my parishioners who also are my dad's customers. And, and, and yeah, it's just funny having so many connections. But yeah, I, I feel very at home here. You're very entrenched in the the Castle Hill local community. I mean, that's it's just phenomenal. Uh, and uh, and oh, yeah. it's all, it's all Red, you're a graduate of Redfield College. Uh, you went in, in, during the high school years. That's right. Even from primary school, actually. Um, yeah. Uh, or even from kindy. Yeah. Uh, I started at Tengara Infants, where the kindies uh, are sent. Yeah. So I've been in the Hills area uh, basically my whole life. So. Yeah, it's good. It's good to be appointed as a priest here. Excellent, and uh, it's just it's absolutely amazing, and uh, I'm I'm sure there's a lot of. Uh, it's only the start of many great things for you, and uh, let's go straight into the t topic today, and that is the magisterium. For those who haven't heard what the magisterium is, what is the magisterium, Father? It sounds like a fancy word. Uh, it sounds very mag uh, like a magistrate, or uh, is it a court? Uh, what what is the church's magisterium or the teaching authority of the church as they call it okay yeah yeah so well I, I was wondering where to start to explain this but i kind of want to start somewhere elsewhere um not by giving a direct definition but just to start off with christ himself um because uh, among the many things that christ came to do um you know including you know uh, atonement dying for us rising from the dead to divinize us and all things all these things uh, one of the things he came to do was also to teach um to reveal uh, scripture says that christ himself is the image of the unseen god and so like in his very person he's he is the revelation of who god is and and um in in some ways he reveals to us who we are as well and how we're meant to um and how we're meant to live and so all this is present in christ in his incarnation christ is the center of what we call divine revelation Mm -hmm. then the question is though how is that divine revelation who is christ passed on um uh you know to the rest of people throughout history you know his disciples and apostles got to see him face to face the people in first century palestine um, um got, got to interact with him but what about the rest of us who don't live with him well this is why christ established the church he entrusted his divine revelation to the church to be passed on to all generations and it's passed on in a couple of ways don't worry, I'm getting to the answer. I hope everyone's still with me. Um, but uh, it's passed on to the, uh, history through uh, a couple of ways. One is through scripture, which is what people would have expected. It's kind of God's divine revelation committed to writing. Um, but it was also passed on in, a, um, in an oral way, in yeah. what we call um, uh, apostolic tradition, which is sort of just the handing on of the faith through things like... Um, just the day-to-day -day preaching of the church through the liturgy of the church throughout the centuries but the thing is christ promised that his divine like uh, his church would be faithful to that divine re revelation he said i'm going to send you the holy spirit um who will guide you into all truth and he said again elsewhere in the gospel of john you know i'll bring to your remembrance all the things that i have taught you through the holy spirit and so He's actually given the church this sort of ability to hold on um, faithfully to what has been revealed from the very beginning into all centuries. And, and for that to happen, he's appointed a, an authority in the church um, to, to guard and safeguard and to pass on that divine revelation. And that's what the magisterium is. It's the teaching authority of the church 
who's been entrusted with divine revelation to protect it and guard it and teach it. Um, and it's, it's even though protecting and guarding, teaching um, the true faith is the responsibility in some ways of all Christians, the magisterium is specifically um, um, the responsibility of, of the bishops. All the bishops in union with the Pope, it's, it, they constitute the magisterium. And they, they've, throughout history, have fought heresies by, you know, coming together in ecumenical councils, for example, to, you know, declare what the true faith is and what it's not. Um, they've, uh, you know, uh, taught in sort of more basic ways in their diocese, all these bishops. Um, and especially lately, um, I, I think in the last 400 years, or is it something like that, Popes have, have started even writing encyclicals, you know, these letters which um, are intended really to, to, to teach in an authoritative, authoritative way. So even today, the, the ecumenical councils, um, the Second Vatican Council is part of the magisterium. The Pope's writings are part of the magisterium. But even just the ordinary teaching of bishops, that's also part of the magisterium. They, mm -hmm. the, the, that's the, um, they teach by a kind of spiritual authority. And that's what we call the ordinary magisterium. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. So we've already started to introduce some technical terms. So the, the church talks about the extraordinary um, magisterium and the ordinary magisterium. So the ordinary magisterium is just sort of teaching in an ordinary everyday way. So when your bishop is, is giving a homily and, and, and saying, um, you know, the, this is what the true faith is and this is what it's not, you know, that's him exercising his authority to protect the true faith. But the extraordinary magisterium is kind of like a... Um, what would you call it like a very definitive act by which um the pope or all the bishops in union with the pope very formally um uh, make a declaration about what belongs to the faith and what doesn't and that includes things like ecumenical councils and um um you know certain infallible teachings of the pope and, and things like that yeah i mean uh, well uh something which i just remembered right now was uh, when our Lord in Matthew 16, 18 gave the keys to Peter and in Matthew 18 uh, gave the apostles that same uh, binding and loosing authority, but not like Peter. But then you see in, in Acts chapter 15, uh, uh, like they assemble and they somewhat exercise that authority. Uh, um, mm -hmm. Like a, a, as an ecumenical council, those, those were my thoughts when I read Acts 15. You're right, Acts 15, which is, um, you know, the, the first ecumenical council in some ways. It's not technically called the first ecumenical council, but it's the first gathering of all the uh, apostles in Jerusalem to discuss the issue of um, whether newly baptized Christians would be obliged to keep the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, to be circumcised and, and, and to engage in all the ritual um, requirements of the old law. And, you know, that was an open question at the time, but they all gathered together and, and um, um, and, and prayed and um, came to the conclusion that it wasn't necessary um, to keep the whole Mosaic law. And so, you know, that, that's a very clear indication in Scripture that, um, you know, that of that authority being exercised. Uh, it, and, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it really is amazing. It, it is. And, I mean, the reason I picked this topic was because we it's easier for us to be tempted into thinking that the only authority um, in in Christianity is Scripture, and I think uh, many of us are, are sort of conditioned into thinking this way because we live in um, in Australia, in a Western country, which um, sort of has more Protestant um, um, 
foundations, you know, from England. And a lot, a lot of our thinking um, can be sort of more Protestant-based. And Protestants do believe in sola scriptura, that scripture is the only kind of ultimate authority. But but that's not what the Catholic Church teaches. Um, the, the Church does teach that the, um, the, the bishops themselves do have um, uh, authority. They're not above scripture. Um, they're, they're called to be servants of scripture and servants of divine revelation. But... Um, but they do have real authority nonetheless, guided by the Holy Spirit. And that's important for us to remember. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is really tempting for people to to just think yeah, it is the Bible. And it's just all about the Bible. It's all about scripture. Um, why do you think our Lord instituted this? Is it, it, it sounds like so much of a better idea because this, this is the way I see it. I mean, we can't have a constitution within a country without the judiciary um the 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 legislative interpreters uh let alone scripture a, a written form uh, of the word of god but but why do you think our lord on a logical level instituted um the church structure of the pope bishops um uh, to govern uh, it seems like a better idea to me at least yeah I mean, the most obvious thing that comes to mind is um, there's a lot of potential for division. Um, if, if scripture were to be the only authority that we have, yeah. um, the next question becomes, well, whose interpretation of scripture is the one that we should follow? Um, because you give two different people the same passages of scripture, um, you'll get two different interpretations, sometimes contrary interpretations, sometimes even conflicting interpretations. Um, and, and so there kind of has to be like an arbiter or a living authority that can that can speak um, on, on God's behalf um, to, to sort of adjudicate whenever there are these conflicts. And that's the main role that the magisterium, sorry, the ecumenical councils have sort of served throughout the centuries. It's often been to adjudicate between these disputes. Um, even heretics actually tended to quite um, quote scripture quite a lot. Um, but as, as the ecumenical council showed, their interpretation wasn't exactly in accordance with what's been handed down. Um, and so uh, having a living authority to point that out, an authority by which we know for sure this is what God is directing us to, mm -hmm. um, was necessary to keep the faith sort of intact, I suppose. I mean, it just makes so much more sense. I mean, uh, I mean, our Lord leaving us with a living, a living way of, I mean, he is the living word of God. So, mm. I mean, he, 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 leaving us 12 apostles and their successors as opposed to a book and many people, everybody interpreting it seems like a lot more of a natural, better way in an earthly sense to, to uh, guide us into truth. Don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And it also shows, um, what kind of our faith is meant to look like because the the church is the location uh, where divine revelation is contained it's not just a bible that chain that shapes the way we think about the faith if it, if it was just a book that's meant to contain the faith our faith becomes something a little bit cerebral just something maybe contained to the mind or um even in some sense reserved to those who are you know more literate um or, or, or something like that but if the faith is actually um located in a living body, a communion of persons, that's what the church is. Um, it kind of shows that our faith is meant 
going to be um, uh, embodied. You know, it, it, the, the church, we understand it not just to be um, any old community either. It's the body of Christ. It's the means by which Christ's presence, Christ's incarnation is kind of like extended on earth for all centuries. Um, the church is, is where Christ in some, in some ways is present um, in an ever new way today. And what that means about the way we think about the faith is, is to be united to Christ just means participation in the life of the church, um, which provides, you know, um, the same graces um, through, through the sacraments that, you know, Christ was an instrument of, not, not just an instrument, Christ himself was the grace even. Um, but, you know, it provides the same teaching that Christ um, himself taught and it provides the same acts of love that Christ himself loved. It's much more living just as Christ was a, had a living human nature. The church, as the location of divine revelation, is a living thing, as, as you mentioned. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a lot more living. I mean, I guess in, in my thoughts. And, I mean, how how do we know our Lord instituted this this governing body of the is it blatantly obvious in scripture? At least to me, it seems blatantly obvious in scripture. Um, mm. uh, how do we prove to somebody, uh, Protestant brethren, um, in, in the apologetics realm, how do you prove overall that uh, this is what our Lord instituted as opposed to just scripture? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, I, I think you've already pointed out something really important which is that um our lord established his church hierarchically um we, we sort of sometimes think that jesus didn't really make we don't think that but i mean some people make the claim sorry that christ didn't create an institution he just sort of came to give a message but you know over the centuries the followers of christ built themselves up into an institution but actually when you look at scripture you'll see that the hierarchical nature of the church mm -hmm. was already begun to be formed by Christ. Yeah. Um, so, so you see, for example, that the apostle Peter is always mentioned first um, uh, among all the apostles. In any list of the apostles, it's always Peter mentioned. And in fact, Peter is mentioned more times um, than all the other apostles combined. So there was clearly like a primacy of Peter as being the first apostle. Yeah. And then there was even like this inner circle of three apostles that seemed to have a privileged access to Christ, um, Peter, James, and John. So yeah. only these three apostles that were able to go up um, the mountaintop to witness Christ's transfiguration. It's only these three who were there to witness his um, um, uh, agony in the garden, in the garden of Gethsemane. Yeah. And then even then, there's the, the 12. You know, the 12 are given this special task of, of being sent out to to preach and to teach, that's very different from the greater body of his disciples. What he gave them more authority, and then there's a, a wider group of even the seventy, um, who were also sent out to go into the towns and villages um, to prepare the way for Christ. And so that these are kind of, kind of like ranks, um, I, I suppose, of authority even um, in the church. And when you look at the background of it, that's that's done very deliberately by the gospel writers because that mirrors the same hierarchical authority mm -hmm. that existed yeah. in Israel under Moses's time. Yes. Um, yes. It, Moses was sort of like the, the, the hierarch of, of the people of Israel as they're wandering the desert. He would settle their disputes. He'd be the one to teach them. He'd be the one to mediate between them and God. But then under Moses, you know, there was these three closest advisors who was um, 
Aaron and his two sons. Yeah. And then even under them, there was, um, you know, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were this body of 12. Mm-hmm. And then when even that got too, too, too much, there was um, uh, Moses appointed 70 elders or 72 elders, sometimes it says, um, to adjudicate between Israel. And so, again, there's this hierarchy in the church, which mirrors the hierarchy of Israel. Yeah. Um, and Christ, in the end, doesn't give, uh, doesn't tell his apostles, write this down for all generations. And, and what you write will be the authority. No, no. He gives authority to the persons themselves, to the apostles. He says, he who hears you, hears me. And he, and he says, behold, uh, I, I'm, I'm sending you out. He sends them out with the same authority with which he has to go out and to um, cast out demons and to heal. And, and especially, as you mentioned earlier, he gives only this authority of the keys to Peter. Mm-hmm. Um, the key, in Matthew 16, he says, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Um, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That authority is given to Peter alone. The other 12 are given the authority to bind and loose, but they're never given the keys. Um, it's sort of like they have to be in union with Peter in order to exercise that authority to bind and loose. Um, so that's kind of a summary but it, yeah, of, of you know how Christ established this authority even from the beginning. We could get into so much depth. I mean, it's it's absolutely amazing. It, it makes so much sense because that's we have that as a foundation in the Old Testament of of the Levitical priesthood of uh, of Moses and and uh, and and it just it's natural that he's fulfilling the New Test uh, he's fulfilling the Old Testament in the New Testament. Then this is the new priesthood, the new hierarchy. Um, it wouldn't just be this idea that yes, we abolish the priest or we abolish the temple, and it's just here's a book. We have a whole new system. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. at least to me, these are those are my thoughts. Um, oh, definitely, and it, even if even if you go beyond scripture and you look to the history of the church, you see that this hierarchy existed from from the very beginning. Um, you know, one of the um, earlier church fathers, Saint Ignatius of Antioch, um, is sort of in the beginning of the second century was saying things like, you know, um, obey the bishop in all things as you would to Christ. Um, he's saying the, the bishop really does have authority. Um, in, in the first centuries of the church, you look at some of the other church fathers, like, um, was it Irenaeus, I think? Yeah, you know, he's he, fighting Irenaeus against... Leon, yeah. Say Irenaeus. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he, he was fighting against um, sort of the Gnostic heresy, and his appeal um, um, to fight this heresy wasn't only to scripture and you know he, even though he did appeal to scripture and say you know they're, they're, these heretics they're teaching things that aren't found in the scriptures but his appeal is um to the tradition that's been handed down through the bishops um wow. he said you know what they're teaching has not been found anywhere in the tradition which has been handed down and he even enumerates the list yeah. of bishops who, who we have to listen to especially even the bishops of rome um i, I think he listed the bishops and he quoted all the bishop the the current bishop of rome all the way back to peter exactly that's in right. that writing, if, if that's correct uh, it's just phenomenal i mean and this this is in what year father i think the first century uh saint irenaeus Please. someone's going to correct me i'm sure but i feel like he's in the third or fourth century i'm not sure but, yeah third or fourth century and it's it's just phenomenal. I mean, and they they weren't too far away from the apostolic times, and they had received it from the apostles. 
Uh, another good one, St. Clement of Rome. I think third pope, the running of St. Clement of Rome. I think that was uh, after the year 100, if that's correct. De definitely. And, and you know, we have the letters of St. Clement um, yep. uh, writing kind of like encyclicals, um, as, as we would have them today, you know, instructions from the Pope, expecting that the people around him would hear. You know, he wasn't one of the 12 apostles, but because he's validly ordained a bishop and he's a successor to, to St. Peter, he was writing with kind of the authority of St. Peter. And, and, and that's somewhat evident in his in his writings. And, you know, probably one of the greatest proofs of the authority of, of, of the church is, you know, the first ecumenical council of Nicaea, um, in which, um, you know, the, the, the bishops of um, at least represented most parts of the world. I, I don't know if they had thousands of bishops then, but uh, from what I understand, it was, uh, yeah, I, a, a few dozens, if, if not hundreds of bishops. But anyway, all of them gathered to fight the Arian heresy, um, this claim that that Christ was um, a, a creature, that he was not equal with God. Yep. Um, but, you know, the, the, the bishops smashed that by their own authority and made a formal declaration saying that, you know, um, he's consubstantial with the Father and the Son. And, and yep. it's from that council that we have the creed, which we say to this day, and even Protestant churches say the creed, in some ways recognizing the authority of, that, um, uh, of the church, even from that era, to make that formal declaration. I mean, that's something I, back when I was in early high school, I was very Protestant in my thinking, but that's something I struggled to compute, that how are we accepting the Trinity? I mean, the doctrine of the Trinity is 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 very much in Scripture, but the understanding of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, one essence, three distinct beings, the way it's elaborated came from the Council of Nicaea. So, so how mm. could you... At least, and this was a council of bishops, successors of the apostles, who who are acting in their authority, and we accept this, and we accept the Nicene Creed. So, I mean, it's just hard to compute that and say, well, hey, this uh, it's just scripture alone. I mean, scripture was even established. Um, we'll get to that a little bit later, but uh, uh, scripture oh, yes. itself wasn't yet established in, in, in this time, I think. Yeah, well, well, that's another good point. Um, yeah, which which is often used to sort of battle this idea that scripture alone is the main authority. Well, I mean, what did the church do in let's say the first um, three or four decades after Christ um, ascended into heaven? Um, sometimes I think we think the earliest pieces of the New Testament written were the, um, some of the letters of Saint Paul, which were written in AD fifty something. So let's mm -hmm. say for that 20 years before Paul even wrote a single letter and Christ had already ascended into heaven, what was the authority by, by, by which you know um, these people acted? They didn't have an appeal to, script, to the New Testament because it hadn't been written yet. Um, it was to the authority of the bishops. Yeah, um, you, you, you wonder apostles. what it was, yeah, because they didn't have scripture in the first, what, it, 300, year, 300 years? Um, or at least the canon of scripture, the 26 books. Correct. Um, they, they had some pieces of scripture, but it wasn't all yeah. sort of collected into one official canon yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then you ask the question, even, you know, how was the canon of scripture even decided upon? You know, yeah. Christ didn't leave us a, a table of contents for the New mm -hmm. Testament to say, these are the books you have to write in the future, right? And, yes. if, and so these are how you know this is what counts as scripture. And these other writings which people made up, they're not scripture. 
Christ didn't do that. So how did they decide what was truly scriptural, um, uh, what was truly inspired by the Holy Spirit out of these writings which existed from, the, you know, St. Paul and others? And what was not of, of the apostles? Well, it was all decided by the authority of the bishops. Again, it's another demonstration of um, the exercise of magisterial authority, even from a very early time. I mean, what's interesting is that during the early church, you could have gone to Alexandria. You could have walked into a church in Alexandria where <laughs> where your ancestors come from, <laughs> Father. Uh, yes, I'm, I, I'm Egyptian, so I hope yeah. what you're about to say about Alexandrians is okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, if I was an early church Christian, you know, just uh, tra uh, you know, living in Lebanon where my my ancestors uh, <laughs> come from, and I I want to go on a pilgrimage to Alexandria. Uh, let's say in the year 200 uh, or 198 uh, and uh, mm. I walk let's say 200 220 or something uh, and I and I catch a horse transport was like back in those days uh, I don't know if they had the opal card but <laughs> I catch a I, I, I catch a horse uh, or a chariot down to Alexandria I want to make a pilgrimage um, and uh, I I walk into a church. I need to make it to the liturgy, the mass, and that's something else we can go into. Uh, I, I walk into the liturgy, and um, a, and I hear the letter of Saint Clement to the Corinthians being read out during the liturgy, wondering mm. what's that letter. You know, if if I'm from a church in let's say south of Lebanon, in Tyre or Jerusalem, you know, they might have been reading different letters. The, the the Didache, the um uh, the letters of Paul, the letters. So it was this, it was scattered around everywhere. So there wasn't really a canon, Father, um, in the early no, church yeah. before the fourth century. And, and there are a few works that you know we regard as being really valuable that some people might have even thought were part of the canon. Like I think there was this work called the Shepherd of Hermas. Yeah. Um, which some people for some time thought might be included in the scripture, uh, in the canon of scripture, but it wasn't. And then there are these other um, really terrible texts, um, not terrible, but like uh, not exactly correct texts that some people thought should have been part of scripture, but um, in the end they weren't. Like uh, um, uh, the Gospel of Thomas um, or, or the, the Proto Evangelium of James. These things we discover, uh, we know now, were written sort of like a few centuries after the time of the apostles, but they're sort of pretending to be gospels from the hands of the apostles. And some of them contain some funny teachings. But that's why, you know, we needed a living authority at that time to be able to discern um, whether it was legit or not. I mean, it, it's just right. You can't escape the authority of the church. I mean, and and, mm. and, and w w I don't know if this is correct or this was the real motive, but what... Didn't we actually, uh, when we actually moved to canonize scripture as a way to know which readings to read in the liturgy? Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, well, that's actually one of the ways that um, scripture was handed on. Like it wasn't just yeah. contained in these writings, which were stored in the library, were like they're pretty good. Um, yeah. the part, one of the ways that we knew what belongs to the canon of scripture or not is the fact that um, it was it was continuously read in the liturgy from you know the time of the apostles to the present day. Um, so you know that liturgy of the word that we have in mass, where you read the letters of Saint Paul. You know that's a practice that's been there from day one. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just amazing. I think every all, all, this whole discussion 
everything points to the fact that our faith hinges upon the authority of the church. I mean, whether we like yes. it or not. Yes, it absolutely does. And part of the reason, again, I wanted to bring up this topic is because humanly, for 21st century Western Catholics, we kind of don't want for there to be um, an authority in the church. There, there's some resistance to that because we live in a postmodern era, um, you know, which is shaped by postmodern philosophy. And postmodern philosophy regards power as being um, uh, suspect. Anyone who's powerful must have some sort of ulterior motive, must have some sort of um, corrupting force in them. Um, and so therefore we should be suspicious of all power. So for, in the 21st century, when you say that there is a teaching authority in the church, postmodern minds will naturally be skeptical and say, hold on, I, I don't know if I should trust this authority. I don't know if I want to believe it. I'm going to obey what I personally think um, yeah. is the best. But, but I want to point out, you know, that, um, you know, uh, uh, I don't think that's what our Lord wanted. I don't think this individualistic mentality and this suspicion of power is, is what our Lord wanted. I mean, it's not as it. Let, let's let's go straight into the to, uh, the the area of what is this authority of the church? Like, where does it? What's the scope of the authority of the church? I think that that's probably mm. the, the 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 question that many listeners have in their minds is, well, we we get it. The church has authority. It's given to us by Christ in the scriptures. The reason we have scripture to even read through is because of that authority that gave you the scriptures. It gave you the creed, uh, the Trinity before that. Uh, it was established by Christ. But what is the scope of this authority? Uh, is everything the Pope says or does or uh, uh, the uh, bishops, every single bishop says or does personally, um, their own personal agendas or initiatives uh, that aren't to do with the faith, that could be climate change or uh, other issues or science? Is everything binding on Christians or where does it, where, where is the limit? Uh, or what is the scope of the church's authority? I think that that's an interesting yes. question, I think, for us it's to an, think about. Yeah. It's an important one because sometimes when people hear the statement some, that, like, the church has authority and you have to obey it, immediately a, count, or a few counter-objections come up. Well, one is, but hold on a second, look at all the corruption that um, uh, in the church. Look at all the bishops who've been absolutely terrible moral examples, to put it lightly, um, um, throughout history, are we meant to obey them? Um, and look, if, even if you want to strengthen the argument with, with a bit of force, you can say, you know, look at the sex abuse scandal. Look okay. at the, um, the, the Borgia Popes uh, um, in sort of like the late medieval period. Uh, like they, they were um, so corrupt, all they cared about was wealth um, and nepotism, and they had children out of wedlock and all these things. Should we obey them? Okay, so this is where it's helpful to introduce some distinctions. Okay, um, the authority of the, of the bishops is over divine revelation, which is it concerns only those things that Christ has instituted for our salvation, namely faith and mm -hmm. morals, yeah. um, um, doctrines to be believed as as um, coming from God, and morals about. Um, uh, ways we should live also as sort of instructed by Christ and handed on. So one of the extraordinary things is that despite 
despite the fact that we've had extremely, extremely corrupt bishops, the teaching of the church on faith and morals, for the most part, has remained fairly consistent. Um, and, and and that's that's a sign that, like, in some ways, it has been guided by the hand of the Holy Spirit. That even though there's been these really corrupt figures, they haven't corrupted what the church has taught for all ages. Um, um, so, so, so that's the first thing. So it concerns faith and morals. But the second thing is, okay, well, what about if you happen to be under one of these bishops um, who's, who's, you know, really, um, let's say, financially corrupt. You're under, you're a medieval Christian um, and you're under one of the Borgia Popes and he asks you to, you know, like, uh, I don't know, do something immoral. Like, what's, what's an example that's not too scandalous I can say on this show? <laughs> <laughs> charge uh, cash oh. indulgence or something <laughs> yeah 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 exactly yeah. something like overcharge for an indulgence to... yes exactly so if, if he's GST asking you to do a... we'll put gst on top oh yeah with some in the pocket as well yeah of course <laughs> um, if he's asking you to do something like that which which is like immoral that's the sin of like simony of, of selling yeah. um sacred things you're not obliged to obey him because what he's instructing you to do is is um, one contradictory to what um, um, conscience says. It's contradictory to what the full body of the, the church's teaching says. Um, um, so he's like he's actually abrogated his authority in that sense by commanding something to be immoral. And your duty to obey God comes before your duty to 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 obey the bishop. So in that case, you know that allows for some disobedience, but. If the bishop, and this is sort of where the key is, if the bishop, as far as you know, um, is not commanding you to do something immoral or something that's, uh, he's not teaching you to believe something that's explicitly untrue or contradictory to the, to, to the true faith, there is a binding duty to obey. Um, it's only in very rare circumstances where we find situations where saints have had to um, like conscientiously sort of object to, to, to what their um, bishops were telling them. For the most part, um, the, the, ob the obligation to obey is, is binding in ordinary circumstances. Mm -hmm. it's, it's absolutely amazing. So, so the scope of the church's authority is in matters of faith and morals. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and you, you mentioned that you touched on discipline. So faith, morals, mm -hmm. discipline. So if mm. Pope Francis wrote a scientific article, we're not obliged to even accept it. He might, uh, it was something on economics or politics uh, without a moral dimension, you know, just economic issues. So we're not obliged to believe it or accept it. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, if it is a scientific issue, let's say that has absolutely no bearing on faith and morals, mm -hmm. then no, like the opinion of the Pope, um, isn't really binding. So obviously, it matters of science. Anything that's not moral, we're not obliged to believe. Or if the Pope goes on the plane and says something about politics, obviously we're not. It's not for us as Catholics to believe. Uh, what he does is in his personal life and different. But in matters of faith and morals, um, is everything the Pope says. Um, uh, to be believed. For example, if they might have a theological opinion about something that hasn't been defined yet by the church, um, 
or, or I may have a particular school of thought. Are we obliged to believe uh, what the Pope says, like in encyclicals or, or, um, mm. or let's say a particular letter he may have written? Is everything I forgot or is it just the official teaching that's been declared formally and reinstated over the centuries? That's, that's sort of, uh, I've been wondering about that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there's this really essential document on this topic mm -hmm. um, that was put out by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith under um, Cardinal Ratzinger. Um, Shout out. Can't remember what year it was from, but 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 it's a um, commentary on the Profession of Faith that was put out, and so yeah, the, the Vatican put out this Profession of Faith. It's a, a statement of what Catholics are meant to say um, about what they believe, and it includes. The full creed, you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Jesus Christ, the only Son, our Lord, the Holy Spirit, the whole Catholic Church, all these things. Mm -hmm. But at, at the end of this um, profession of faith, um, the church has added three paragraphs, three extra paragraphs. Um, the first paragraph says something to the effect of, um, I believe everything um, that the church pro proposes has been divinely revealed by God. Mm -hmm. And I reveal that with um um with faith so it actually belongs to faith and um to believe in the dogmas that the church carries um and all the dogmas which carries which it says have been directly revealed by god and then in the next paragraph it says something to the effect of i also believe all those things which the church proposes um uh, are necessary for belief that have some sort of like intrinsic connection to the dogmas of the faith so they might not have been directly revealed by god but they're sort of like necessary to believe because they're um uh they kind of like safeguard um divine revelation mm -hmm. um so so um these are these might be things like infallible declarations from the pope you are still obliged to believe them mm -hmm. and then the last category of, of belief it also says is i kind of give um religious submission of intellect and will to those other teachings, um, including disciplinary teachings, um, which the church puts forward. So even though these things might not be infallible, um, they, we still have to give them some sort of um, uh, high opinion. Yeah. We still have to give them some sort of yeah, assent. So essentially what I'm saying, um, and if, if anyone's made it with me this far, I want to tell them, actually, it's better to go read the original document because I'm sure I'm bu I've butchered it. But the, the uh, essential point I'm trying to get to is that people think the only things that I have to believe are what's been infallibly declared by the by the Pope. You know, when he makes a really formal declaration that what I'm teaching is absolutely true without error. Mm -hmm. But that's not true. You actually have to believe and you have to give our um, kind of obedience of of like a, a, of the, our assent of our belief um, to the other things that the church teaches, even in an ordinary way. And that includes... Um, uh, you know, things like that are in the encyclicals of the Pope. Um, they're not necessarily infallible if they're in an encyclical, but we still have to kind of believe them unless we have like absolutely um, certain and and like extreme evidence that what he's saying is heretical. But I don't know if you've ever been in that position. Yeah, exactly. So so it would be the dogmas of the faith are infallibly defined uh, in what's called, the, I think, is it the extraordinary magisterium? where the church mm. comes together and, and the Pope exercises his authority as Pope on matters of faith and morals and to the whole church. Um, mm. 
So the dogmas, that's how we get the dogmas. But then you have the, the regular doctrine that's related to the dogmas that are infallible. Correct. We have to give religious assent to. And then um, the things which flow from that, which are uh, the encyclical or, or the other things which pop up in the ordinary magisterium. Um, let's say a Pope writes an encyclical um, uh, and, and the things which it's it's sort of like a constitution of a country that's the constitution mm. is enshrined that's like the dogmas and then you have other law uh, uh, and then you have uh conventions which are similar to the dogmas they're not defined infallibly <laughs> and then you have yes. the uh, that's a great analogy the first time i actually thought about it and then the third mm. one is um is is the constant legis new legislations that come out that get amended yes Right. That's, is that is that a right way to say it? Well, there's a parallel in the sense that there's a yeah. kind of hierarchy of of um, uh, of laws. You know, there's the laws that are most important and essential, like the constitution, mm -hmm. and then there are other things like. Uh, actually, I'm not an expert in law, so I won't try and repeat what you mm -hmm. said. But in term in terms of the church's teaching, there are a hierarchy. There is a hierarchy of beliefs. <clears throat> the most important ones are those essential dogmas. And then there's sort of other ones that have an intrinsic connection to those other dogmas. Um, they're mm -hmm. called doctrines. Then there are other sort of regular teachings and then there are disciplines. And um, just because some of the disciplines may be a bit more removed from like the essence of the core message of Christianity, it mm -hmm. doesn't mean that we're free to disobey them. You know, the, the magisterium implements each one of those levels of teaching to um, in some way protect what the true faith is, what, what the church is teaching is, what God has actually um, mm -hmm. revealed. So in each of them, some uh, a, a different level of assent is required, a different level of belief is required, but it's always kind of belief and obedience nonetheless. Exactly, exactly. So it's, 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 it's a natural thing where if I believe in Christ, I believe in his church, and I give my assent naturally, I accept all the dogmas, and what flows from the dogmas are that doctrine, and then the church naturally, ordinarily would just teach as it goes along through the ages relevant to the time and restate these dogmas in encyclicals. It might re-mention, re-quote them, re-teach them, re-word re them. Um, mm. I mean, that's that's a really good way to see it. But let's go into discipline. So faith morals, obviously, um, that can be mm. defined infallibly as a dogma or natural law. But let's talk about discipline. This is a part of uh, the magis uh, magisterium, the authority of the church that, often gets overlooked that the church has actual governance, earthly governance over us mm. um, uh, to, to institute uh, disciplines and, and govern the faithful. I mean, it, it gets, uh, without falling into legalism. Yeah, yeah, oh, 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 definitely. So um, this authority to bind and loose that was given to Peter, um, I think concerns making not just sort of like um, sort of abstract doctrinal declarations, you know, about what's true and what's not true. In, in sort of the Hebrew mentality, to bind and loose also concerned um, making judgments about how people are to live, um, binding people to do X, Y, and Z, and, 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 and loosening people from other obligations and whatever. Um, so I think kind of like a, um, like a parent has authority to instruct their, their children in, in, to do and not do certain things, um, the magisterium also has authority and discipline. And, and that's because 
the truths of our faith affect the way we live and affect the way we pray. And so that, that's why the church can say you have to live in this way in order to safeguard, you know, these truths about our faith. So an obvious one is, um, um, like one example is the church's discipline says you have to fast during the time of Lent. Mm -hmm. well, there's laws of fasting and abstinence. And what's the purpose of that? Well, it's to indicate to us that Easter is the, and, and Holy Week especially, and Easter um, is the summit of our Christian living. The, the um, Christ's death and resurrection are the central mysteries of our faith. And so you have to prepare yourself spiritually, yeah. physically, mentally for it. And so you see, it's a discipline. You're like, okay, where does it say in the Bible you have to, you have to fast for 40 days and, and, uh, before Easter? Well, it doesn't, but that discipline I mean, there are parallels in the Bible, but it doesn't say it explicitly. You have to do it that way. But but the reason the church commands it, and the reason you have to obey it is because it safeguards your spiritual life. It safeguards the truths of our faith and expressed in, the, in our prayer and liturgical calendar. And that applies with so many things like the, there are other liturgical disciplines. Um, there's, there's there's rules. There's canon, the whole body of canon law uh, are rules about how parishes can operate, about how universities can operate, about the rights and obligations of the faithful. The church has the authority to, to rule on all of those things um, in order to safeguard souls and, and, and safeguard the truth. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, here's one, one thing to think about. I often say is confession. Um, you must use the formula. Um, I absolve you of your sins uh, as a priest. And if you don't use that particular formula, the confession is invalid. So... So, so the church instituting a discipline, I mean, people are like, oh, what's the big deal about the word, you know, and uh, the exact wording, why are we so rigid about rules? But it's sort of, you know, it's the quality assurance that the church, I, I see it as a quality assurance program <laughs> that the sacrament actually happened through the means of the, uh, the means of the discipline, you know, that the church gave us on it. It's an earthly thing. You got to say these words it's a formula but that's how you actually get the spiritual reality i mean it's just phenomenal and the mass as well i mean if you don't it when you say mass and if you don't um if if we if you don't say uh you exercise the rights correctly we don't get the mass uh i mean that's how we know the mass occurred i mean it, it, it's just phenomenal how such earthly things uh, i mean God created the uh, the world. He wants to use earthly means, you know, for the supernatural. It's just phenomenal. Yeah. Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I mean, again, the church sort of makes these rules not just to be to be really legalistic and, um, uh, you know, just to make life difficult. But again, it's to safeguard what's most essential. You know, the church says the the essential um the the essence of the Eucharist, um. Is, is in the matter, you know, uh, having bread and wine and in the form, which is, you know, speaking the words um, of, of the institution, the words of, of, of our Lord at the Last Supper. Mm -hmm. And the reason it has such stringent rules about those needing to be those words and needing it to be bread and wine um, is to safeguard the, the, the reality of the sacrament that it bears an intrinsic connection to the Last Supper, um, to Christ's death, the following day and his and his resurrection the last day like all those mysteries are contained in there and so those words are, are the words which um kind of have like a performative power 
um, through the Holy yeah. Spirit that actually um, can affect the sacrament. So the church there is, the, the rule exists to protect, not to restrict. Exactly, yeah. Otherwise, you know, you we could just use milk for mass, Doritos, uh, all sorts of things, and you don't have the sacrament because, I mean, what happens in those cases, I mean, it really really see the, the, the earthly and, and the divine working together, you know, using earthly mm. discipline. But I mean, it, it's so easy for people to just look and say, oh, look, 40 days of fasting, no meat on these days. It's just a bunch of rules. Uh, mm. uh, but it's actually coming from in Matthew 16, 18, Matthew 18, 15 through 18, Acts chapter 15, uh, all the scriptural references where, where mm. our Lord gives authority. And then the church can decide what it does with that authority from there onwards. It sort of doesn't need to be proven in scripture. As long as the authority of the church is, is in scripture and it gave you scripture, um, it's, it's absolutely yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. No, all, all that's absolutely true. And yeah. the other interesting thing is um, even if, what the church commands seems to you to be um, uh, nonsensical. Yeah. There's, there's always a good reason for it. Um, and, and, you know, like usually there's a, the, from a human perspective, um, mm -hmm. you know, the bishops who implement it have good reasons for the rule, but we're, there's also a good reason to obey them just in the fact that we believe the Holy Spirit is operative. Um, th through the sacrament of holy orders, through their authority. So it's not just a human authority that you're obeying, um, but it's kind of a, a divine authority that, that's been given to these people. Um, and so even if there's a kind of a disagreement, like I'm not sure why this is being asked of me, there is still something, uh, there's, there's most likely a good reason going on for that rule, even if you don't realize it. So it's still worth obeying. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I'm trying to think of a of a good example of maybe a, a not obvious reason for a church's rule that you might discover later. Um, meat on Friday, no, meat on Friday is out. Uh, well, okay, well, well, that's not that's not a bad one. Like, a, good for example, Friday. like for you, you, or even good, or even we can do the yeah. meat, um, the fasting on Friday. Yeah. yeah. Um, for the longest time, I would just do it because, you know, that's what Catholics do. You just don't have meat on yeah. Friday. When you go to Mac's, you have to get the fillet of fish um, instead of getting a Big Mac. It was made is, for us, actually. It was actually made for it, us because no one, sales were down with meat on Fridays. <laughs> the fun fact. Yes, I, I, I have heard that. So that's yeah. back when Mac's, um, you know, had some regard for the Catholics. No, no, I don't know if that's true. Um, but um, yeah, but so I would just obey that until I finally made the connection one day that the reason the church asks you to, to fast on Friday um, is because every single week of the, of of your of the church's life, you're reliving the central mysteries of our faith: Christ's death and resurrection. On Friday, you're fasting in order to die with Christ on Good Friday and and sort of discipline your body, um, and then on Sunday. Every Sunday, we rise with Christ in the resurrection. And, that, and that's what happens when we go to Mass and receive the Eucharist. Um, and so it's kind of like it's another way of just like living in your bones, in your very everyday living, um, making present the, the pattern of Christ's death and resurrection. 
And so, you know, that, that only like struck me probably um, when I was in the seminary. And I was like, I'm glad that I've been doing this my whole life because now it has so much more meaning. Exactly. Exactly. And look, the church can, so with discipline, the church can take away or change these things. It's not like, it's not like the teaching of the church that can't change. Uh, disciplines can change. We can, the church can error in its discipline. Like maybe, or was it maybe a prudential idea, let's say in the Middle Ages, for the church to offer monetary indulgences? You know, that was a mm. bad idea at the time. It could be abused and it got abused and the church changed it. You know, uh, meet on Fridays used to be a thing and I think now it's optional. There's so, You can do some other penance. Um, you know, there used to be a nine-hour fire. Sorry, a, a there used to be, yeah, I think a fast, yeah, it was the um, from the night before for communion. Um, and now it's just simply one hour before that, before receiving communion. I mean, mm. disciplines change. Uh, uh, right. well, a, a excellent example is that we had the traditional Latin Mass as the mainstream Mass before the Second Vatican Council. Now it's just another form of the Roman Rite um, or another, another Rite in itself. Now we have the new Rite. Things can change. The church has the power to change the authority, uh, authoritative things, um, the disciplinary things, I guess. Yeah, well, well, the church is called mother mm -hmm. for many reasons. But but one of the reasons that, that it's like defined with this sort of parenting role is because that's exactly what parents do. Like they have certain sets of disciplines and rules for their kids. And as the kids grow older and their needs change and their circumstances change, um, a parent will... Um, adapt the rules to, to those new needs and those new circumstances. So that's mm -hmm. why the church's discipline can change. It's not an indication that the church's um, teaching has changed, but it, it's sort of, it's an indication that, you know, the most effective way to live as a Christian in this time and place um, um, is what's different. So that's why the church's rules can adapt to that. I mean, that's, that's just amazing. I mean, it, it's very, very amazing. This this whole setup our Lord had in mind and he, he knows best. But let's go into three practical tools now to wrap up. What are three practical tools for people to take action, to better appreciate the magisterium, the teaching authority of the church and better understand it and, and, and its role and just its role of how it keeps the church united uh, spiritually uh, on earth? Uh, what are some three practical tools for us, Father? Okay. Um, so the first thing I'd say is read. Um, re read what the church actually teaches on a particular topic. Like you, you might have assumptions about what the church teaches. You might have um, um, even maybe some stereotypes about what the church teaches. But unless you actually go and read the original documents, um, you won't know for sure. And actually reading the documents, you'll find that what the church teaches is far more rich than what you probably thought. And mm -hmm. it probably makes much more sense that, that, than what, what the stereotypes um, exactly. say. So the, the first thing is to read. Um, so, so like, what, what is it that can be read? So Father Mike Schmitz is doing something awesome um, at the yes. moment where he's um, doing the Catechism in a Year project. Catechism where every single day for... 365 days um he'll read a, a little bit of the catechism of the catholic church which is kind of a summary of all the church's teachings um and he explains them so do that i mean read the catechism it's it's such a beautiful document um if you're able um and, and you're even more curious like go and read 
the documents of the Second Vatican Council, the, you know, the latest ecumenical council of the church. Again, there's so many things said about them. There's um, sort of, uh, yep. people talk about the spirit of the Second Vatican Council, people characterize it one way or another. But when you actually go down to the documents, they're, they're quite solid Excellent. Um, um, for the most part. Excellent. So, so read, yeah, yeah. Practical Learn. tour number one. Now let's go into practical tour number two. Okay, so the second one is um, make a deliberate choice to believe. So we're all stuck in this um, sort of desire to want to be self-ruling, to want to follow my own, um, excuse me, to follow my own um, will, to follow my own thinking. But it's actually really freeing in a way to say, hold on, well, if if God has given this authority to the magisterium of the church, um, whatever my thinking is, pales in comparison to what God has revealed and protected through the Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to make a deliberate choice to, to believe everything that the church teaches. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can go and make that profession of faith that's found on the Vatican website, which includes those extra three paragraphs and says, you know, I, I give um, religious submission of intellect and will to, to, to what the church teaches. And I think this actually ends up being very liberating. Um, because once you've believed everything that the church teaches, um, then things begin to make sense. Then like all these pieces of the church's teaching exactly. begin to fit together and you can exactly. build a very Catholic mindset. Mm -hmm. um, and it's quite transformative. So, so I'll say that. Believe everything. Believe everything. Yep. Practical tool number three. Okay. And the last one is inevitably there might be times when you don't understand the church's teaching or, or you might disagree with it. So the question is, are you meant to obey even in that situation? Um, so I, I'd say yes, but make it like a conditional obedience, like not, sorry, not conditional, but like a, um, an obedience and a belief that is seeking further understanding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you say, yes, I will believe the church is teaching, but, but ponder, ponder. Like I don't, you might think I don't understand why it teaches this. And in fact, I think the opposite will go and study, ask, exactly. you know, why does the church teach it this way? Um, there might be more reasons you haven't considered. And that might even lead you into a dialogue, let's say, with your priest or your bishop. And you might say to them, I don't get why the church teaches what it does. Can you explain it to me? Um, and and you know, even your bishop or, or, or priest might be then in a better position to um, uh, explain things to you in a, in a more clear and, and compelling and relevant way. So in that study and in that pondering and in that dialogue, I think there's a lot of fruit to be born. It doesn't just mean, you know, like just just be quiet and, and obey and, and yeah. don't ask any questions. No, ask questions and challenge because I think that that um, ends up being fruitful. So long as you're asking questions within the framework of one who wants to mm -hmm. believe. That's amazing. Thank you so much for being with me here on the Catholic Toolbox, Father. Thanks, George. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. If you can leave us with your blessing. Oh, sure. I'm not sure if it works through screens, but we'll try it anyway. <laughs> Um, the Lord be with you. Be with your spirit. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for tuning into the Catholic Toolbox, the art of practical Catholicism. Don't forget to go to thecatholictoolboxshow.com. There's thecatholictoolboxshow.com or get your podcast wherever you uh, use your podcast on whatever platform at the Catholic Toolbox. Till next week, I'm your host and founder. God bless. Take care and take action.
In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity.